Our text for today comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19, 20, and 21. It reads this way in the King James text. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, literally the Holy Spirit. The title that I gave to the study of these passages is personalizing versus privatizing Scripture. This text begins and ends with the understanding that God has given us His Word and that we can relate to that Word using the tools that He's provided so that we don't have to guess at what is being said, but we can understand it. While it's imperative that we take personal the Word of God, and that we make a personal application of the Word to us, there is at the same time a real danger of our privatizing Scripture. That is, of our interpreting Scripture to agree with what our beliefs already are, rather than modifying or adjusting our beliefs to conform with what we discover is found in the Word of God. As I got into the language, one of the things that I found myself doing was going to particular passages of Scripture and seeing if it said it the way that I understood it and hoped that it said it that way. And more times than not, I was simply affirmed in my position, but there were a few times when, no, it doesn't say that, it says this. An example being of Abraham taking Isaac up to the mountain and to offer him, and Abraham saying to Isaac, when Isaac said, we've got the fire and we've got the knife and we've got the wood, but where's the all, the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. That's how the King James text reads. So I wanted the Greek text to say, God will provide himself for a sacrifice. Himself as a sacrifice. But it didn't say that. It simply said that God would provide for himself a sacrifice, not of himself, not himself, though that's what he did. But I wanted to be able to back that up in the Greek language. Sorry, it didn't work out that way. We find it is important to know what the text says and then to interpret it in the light of that context to understand it in that light, and then whatever adjustment we have to make to our own previously developed viewpoint has to take place rather than trying to modify the Scripture to agree with what we already believe. Back in the 80s, I was invited to critique a new translation of the New Testament. It was called the Simple English New Testament. The simple English. It never seemed to catch on very good, though I gave it a pretty good critique for what it was. It was very readable. It was good for that aspect of getting familiar with with the story. Uh, they had done a far better job on the interpretation or translation of uh, particular 
Greek passages into English than I anticipated. So I gave it a pretty good grade and and uh, pointed out it wasn't good study reference because it wasn't uh, that thorough and, and dogmatic. It was more general. But I gave it a pretty good rating. And when I did that, they wrote me back and asked me if I would be on the editorial board uh, to critique. They were doing a English translation, a simple English translation of the Old Testament. So I told them I would be glad to participate in that. They sent me then the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And that was the end of it. I was appalled (laughs) by their approach to it, where they had taken far more literal approach to the Greek New Testament. They got into their own opinions in the Old Testament. And of course, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are foundational to whatever we do. It is the basis, the foundation of the not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. And they took a theistic evolution approach. Theistic evolution is quite popular among even a lot of evangelical Christians. What theistic evolution concludes is that, yeah, things evolved much like Darwin theorized they would evolve, or they did evolve. But God oversaw it all, so the hand of God was in the various ages. The six days were literally long periods of time, but God oversaw it. Well, you might know my critique of it was not very good. As a matter of fact, it was such a nature that I heard no more from them. That was the end of my being involved in that translation. About two years later, though, I received a telephone call for a gentleman who told me that he was on that board that was was developing that simple English translation and that uh, he, as a result of my critique, had withdrawn from the board. They'd had a number of people withdraw from the board and that he had spent the last two years trying to follow, to find me. We had moved from Sacramento uh, up to the foothills, up into Sonora, and uh, he was had not been able to locate me. I remember when he called, he said, uh, I'm looking for the Troy Welch that used to be pastor of Signal Heights Baptist Church in Sacramento. And I said, well, this is that Troy Welch. So he said, well, I'm, I'm delighted to find you. I've been looking for you for two years. He said, when we got your critique of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, He said uh, it caused quite a stir uh, in our group and some of us pulled out. He said, I pulled out and I brought your materials, your critique materials with me. And I've been looking for you because I'm part of a new group. (laughs) They want to do a new translation of the Bible. And we want you to be a part of that. We probably talked for at least an hour, and in that course of conversation, I lost track of the number of times that he said, we're looking for spirit-filled men. We let the charismatic movement steal that phrase, spirit-filled men. I considered myself spirit-filled, but... I questioned his use of the term because that was in the beginning of the the uh, charismatic movement that had spread in all denominations and all around the world. Uh, That emotional response and the the putting forth of the idea that that uh, our relationship with God is 
is to be based on emotion and feeling and uh, rather than exactly what the Word says. And so I kept, every time he would say, we're looking for spirit-filled men, I, I would remind him I was not charismatic. And he said, I know that. I know that. I have your doctrinal statement. I have your statement on spiritual gifts right here with me, as well as some of the work of translation that you've done. We want you to be a part. He said, the thing is, I've been looking for you for two years. We're going to meet this next week at the University of San Francisco, and we would like to have you there for three days. We're going to have a three-day meeting. We would like to have you there for three days, starting Monday. Well, this was about Wednesday or Thursday of that of the week ahead. So I talked with him more and said, could you send me some information about the foundation? Who is it that's doing it? Well, it's a private foundation that's doing it, and we just want to get a good, accurate translation. Well, I told my wife, I'm going to go. I agreed to go and see what it's all about. But I probably won't be gone three days. I'll probably be home the first night. Because it's probably a charismatic translation that they're looking for. And uh, I was not, I was disappointed, but I was not wrong. When in that first session, it became, uh, by their own words, we're looking for spirit-filled men gifted in the biblical language to develop a good readable translation He left it off there. When I got to the conference, they said to develop a translation of the Bible which is more favorable to the charismatic view. Uh, That's what I was afraid of. (laughs) So I tried to quietly bow out, telling the gentleman who had contacted me and was responsible for me being there, that I had thought I had made it clear. And he said, you did. We need your checks and balances so that we keep an accurate translation. Well, that's an oxymoron. You have an accurate translation that is purposely being translated to be more favorable to the charismatic position than any of the translations or any of the original language that was out there. So he he persuaded me to stay overnight and uh, said the board had met, and after hearing me, I had made some comments <laughs> about the danger of trying to interpret the Bible according to our own bias. I Every time I get into a study of the Word of God, daily I have to try, I said try, try to divorce myself of what I already believe concerning that and let the passage set what I need to believe. There are adjustments from time to time that we need to make in our understanding as we are exposed to more of the Word of God. And it's a difficult thing to set aside one's own personal bias. And I said to them in a general session, I said to them it is a difficult task for me as a student of the Bible to divorce myself from my bias and learn exactly what that passage is saying and then adjust my doctrine to fit it. To deliberately set out. Good thing there weren't any stones laying in the room. To deliberately set out, I said, to try to translate the Bible so it supports your bias is a very dangerous thing. And I cited this passage that is our text today. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19, 20, and 21. For we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well, that you take heed 
as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is a private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. No scripture is a private interpretation. I went to pastor church at Sacramento, the church that he was trying to locate me with, and in their constitution and bylaws, their doctrinal statement said, we believe that all Scripture is a private interpretation. Well, we can make it say what we want it to say. <laughs> I didn't do very well at that church. They set my car on fire. They doctored the transmission in both of my vehicles. They they um, threatened physical violence. It was an interesting time. Because they believed that Scripture was a private interpretation. It's what God says to me in the passage. He may say something different to you in the passage, but He speaks to me directly, and uh, the passage has to be interpreted to who I am and what my circumstances are and my needs. There's a theological term for that. Hogwash. <laughs> is the term. But they asked me to serve as editor of the New Testament. I said, does that mean I have the last word to say as to how it is written? No, the board still retains the right to make adjustments. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. Well, the board said, could you Tomorrow at our noon at 11 o'clock session, the students, some students are coming in from the university and joined the scholars and the educators that were there. And he said, I was supposed to bring the address, but the board wants you to bring the address and they want you to exegete this passage in Second Peter that you referred to today that no scripture is a private interpretation. So I did. And I was really surprised. I expected to get stoned. But I was in San Francisco. It's easy to get stoned. <laughs> see, how, see how important words are? <laughs> Our understanding of words in their context. But... Uh, At the end of my address, I got a standing ovation. And the board announced they were going into an emergency session during the lunch hour and for us to be back promptly at 1 o'clock. We were supposed to already schedule to be back at 1.30, but to be back at 1 o'clock. And when we got back, they announced they had voted to disband the project. They were not going to do a translation of the New Testament or the Bible that made their charismatic position more palatable. So when I got home, my wife said, yeah, every time you get a job offer, you talk yourself out of it. So We need to understand what this text is saying and understand that it is imperative that we personalize the Word of God, understand how it relates to us, and James tells us in the fifth chapter of James, chapter 1, James says, if any of us lack wisdom, and that word is sophos, that is the ability to understand how the passage relates to you. Sophos. How? It relates to me. James said, if any of you lack that, let him ask of God 
that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. So we are to personalize God's Word, but we are not to develop our own private interpretation of any passage of Scripture. Let's look at it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That's the reading of the King James text. A literal reading of the Greek text says, and we have more sure the prophetic word to which well you do, taking heed as to a light shining in a dark and murky place until the day dawns and the day star rises in the hearts of you. Interesting phraseology that is used here. And we keep on having a more steadfast prophetic word to which well we do, taking heed as to a lamp shining continually in the sphere of a dark and murky place. So, he begins by telling us that we have a sure word of prophetic utterance from God. God has revealed to us through the apostles, through the divinely inspired Word of God, He has revealed to us that which we need to know concerning our lives, concerning the future, concerning all of the relationships that we might have. God has provided a more sure Word through the apostles and through the inspiration of Scripture, so that we have a lamp, a light that shines. Remember, the, the Scripture says, uh, the psalmist said, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, and I will hide its truths in my heart that I do not sin against God. God has given us a revelation of all that we need to know for every decision that we need to make, for every day that we live. He has provided the basics in biblical principles and guidelines for us. And uh, the Word is like a lamp that shines in a dark and murky place. We are to pursue that Peter says, until, notice that word, until, day dawns and the day star doth appear or rises. The day star is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no article in front of the word day star. In the English we say the day star. But in the original text it simply said day star. Now I would remind you, as is my habit, to remind you that there is no indefinite article in Koine Greek. Now don't turn me off when I talk about an indefinite article. All I'm talking about is the word a or the word an. In the Koine Greek language, there is no word a, nor is there any word an. They have the article, that's the word the, the indefinite article in English, if we're just talking not about the book, but about a book, we can word that different. In Greek, if you're going to talk about a book, you're going to talk about the characteristics of that book. Or if you want to talk about this book, then 
the article is used. The day star, there is only one day star that is meant by the reference here to the morning star, the, the, the star that we see in the morning. And, uh, the scriptures through the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us that that day star is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So why didn't it say the day star here? Because it's not emphasizing Christ personally. That's already taken for granted and understood. It is Christ is the day star. The Messiah is the day star. But they left out the article to emphasize the characteristics of the day star. The day star was used symbolically, the literal day star, the morning star, to identify a new beginning, a fresh start, that all of that has be the hope of daytime after the darkness is past. So that is used by Peter here in a very graphic way as he gives to us an emphasis upon the characteristics of the of the Lord Jesus Christ as the morning star, as the day star. That He is our hope in a dark and murky place. He is our hope. And His Word reveals Him. But notice it says, until the day star rises, don't stop there, but where does the day star rise? In your hearts. In the hearts of you. The Word is to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path until that morning star, that day star, characterized by all that, the hope and uh, the encouragement that it presents is developed in our heart. No, our heart. Guy's confused. He points to his head when he says heart. That's in keeping with both the Hebrew and the Greek. The mind is identified as an organ that is programmable. And our thought pattern is developed through our life here upon the earth. From the time of our birth until the present hour and hopefully beyond this, there is information being processed. And as we look at the human brain, the front part of the brain is divided into two lobes. The left lobe and the right lobe. The left lobe of the human brain is what you are using as I am speaking to you and you're following the guide, the study guide. It is where we process information. Information is taken in in our left frontal lobes. And along with the information, also the comprehension. We comprehend and understand things in the left front part of our brain. But there is a separation between the left lobe and the right lobe. The right lobe is that part of our brain that dictates our behavior. We act upon the impulses and the material, the the feeding through and processing of information in the right frontal lobe. Where our conscience is. Where we establish our frame of reference, our norms and our standards. They're in the right frontal lobe. There is information in the left frontal lobe. There is information in the right frontal lobe. But it's information in the right frontal lobe that dictates our behavior. We behave not by what we know. We behave by what we believe. And so... As we process information, 
Some of that we just file away for later reference. Some of that we discard because we reject it. Others of that information we accept. And as we accept it as a norm or standard for ourselves, as a truism for us, it's moved from the left frontal lobe to the right frontal lobe, from our uh, left frontal lobe where we have processed it, we now move it to our right frontal lobe. It becomes our norm, our standard for that particular thing. It dictates our behavior. So all of that information that we take in from the Word of God, you take in in the left frontal lobe and you comprehend it there or you scratch your head and say, I don't know where he was trying to go with that. But you process it there and then that which you accept and understand as the Word of God and a norm or standard for you that is moved to the right frontal lobe in your norms and standards in your frame of reference and that's the person you are. Some have said we are the total sum of all that we have experienced. That's incorrect. It's partially correct. But there's another additive to that We are the sum total of all that we have experienced and our response to it. We respond to the same circumstance, the same situation differently depending on how we're programmed, depending on what we believe, depending on what we have accepted as norms and standards for ourselves. We need this day star, this morning star of hope. We need it to rise in our right frontal lobe. That's the word heart. It refers to the right frontal lobe of our brain where our understanding is mixed with faith, where our various makeup for our soul and our spirit is found in that right frontal lobe. The day star came almost 2,000 years ago. He died on the cross of Calvary to pay our debt, to pay our sin. He rose after three days to ascend to His Father in heaven and to become our advocate before the Father. He's coming again. When we're talking about the day star rising, we're not talking about His first coming or His second coming. We are talking about His being alive and real and having risen in our norms and standards in our frame of reference. The day star, that hope, that signification of hope and direction and help is to be developed in our conscious mind where we have affirmed what we find about Him in the Word and we have made it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Christ is risen from the dead, but unfortunately... In all too few lives has He risen in the hearts of believers. We apply the Word to our life. It becomes our norm and standard. We are then enabled to walk according to these seven principles that we've been examining that were on the graphic that Tim provided for you. You can't do those things without developing that mindset until the day star arises in your heart, in the heart of you, in your functioning mind, where your norms and standards are. Verse 20 continued. Knowing this first, 
that no prophecy of the scripture is a private interpretation. Knowing this first, that every prophecy of scripture is not to become of one's own interpretation is the declaration. We're believer priests. We can certainly make personal and even private the application of Scripture to our lives, but to interpret it is always a danger. We need to know what it says and then adjust what we believe to what it says. You want to know what you believe? Take an inventory of your behavior. What we do does not always go along with what we say we are. But what we do is who we are. So if you want to know what you believe, just inventory your behavior. And it's there that we need to make the adjustments then in what we believe. We don't believe the same thing about sin that God does. Oh, we know what God believes about sin. He said that. And we say that we agree with that. But our behavior doesn't reflect that. We find ourselves walking contrary to what we say we believe. So we really don't believe it. We believe God said it. We believe, yeah, that ought to be, but we are not willing to accept it for ourselves. What you are is determined by your behavior and your attitude. And no scripture then is a private interpretation. If we're going to have any hope, if we're going to have any clear direction, we have to go by what God said in His Word. Not by what we feel at this moment that it might mean. Yeah, I know that's what God said, but what does it mean? Well, unlike you and I, God says what He means. But through the translation of Scripture, the original giving of Scripture in different language than we have, uh, there can be confusion. So we have to study the Word, to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Verse 21 says this, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, in the King James, most of the time when it says Holy Ghost, I just automatically say Holy Spirit. Because the word ghost is erroneously translated. As a matter of fact, there's not even a Greek word for ghost. There's a word phantomos for phantom. That's about as close as you can get. But in some places in your Bible, it talks about the Holy Ghost in in your King James Bible. In other places, it talks about the Holy Spirit. Are they different? Well, there's a denomination that developed over the perceived difference between the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit and within the Pentecostalism, they, they identified two different situations, two different persons. How, why does it say ghost sometimes and Holy Spirit and other places? Well, when they translated, when the King James translators translated the Bible, uh, the New Testament from Greek to English, and the Old Testament from Hebrew to English, they set up three teams of translators. One team was at Oxford University. Another team was at Cambridge University. And another team was at Westminster University. For some reason, one of those teams, when they came to the word pneuma, which means spirit, Translated ghost. So, it's the same word when the other two teams came upon the word pneuma, they translated it spirit. And so when you see the word 
the words Holy Ghost. It's Holy Spirit. It's Numa, And there is no distinction to be made by ghost in one place and spirit in the other place. It should always be spirit. Because not by the will of man came prophecy at any time, but by spirit holy being brought, men spoke from the God. Not an emphasis upon the characteristics of Christ here, but the identity of God Himself, the God. So, we have the identification given then that prophecy did not come by the will of man, but holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit and they wrote as the Holy Spirit gave them direction. So that passage should better read this way, verse 19, 20, and 21. And we keep on having more steadfast the prophetic word to which you keep on doing well, making it a principle to turn your attention to as a lamp continually shining in the sphere of darkness and murky place until the day dawns and the day star arises in the spheres of the hearts of you. So the word is like a lamp to us until the light comes on and we understand who Christ is and what Christ is about and His Word as it has been given to us and we have that develop in our right frontal lobe, in our heart. Making it a principle to continually be taking in knowledge gained through inquiry and understanding this first, every prophetic revelation from the source of Scripture is not to become something it was not originally of one's own interpretation. Because not through the instrumentality of the desire of man was brought prophecy at any time, but by the agency of the Holy Spirit, as a matter of principle continuing to be brought, men spoke from God. Let me summarize it. We have a more steadfast word of prophecy today because Jesus has provided positional fulfillment and by His presence assured us of the future material, physical fulfillment. We can look at the Old Testament and read through the Old Testament and see the prophecies there. We can see the ordinances. We can see the ritual. We can see the offerings and the sacrifices that were teaching about Jesus Christ. And then He came and He fulfilled all of that in His first coming that was required for our redemption. And He's coming back to fulfill the final three feasts where He is going to close out the book and we'll move into eternity. We have a more steadfast word of prophecy today because He fulfilled those things for us. We would do well to turn our attention to that prophecy as a lamp giving light in the midst of darkness and confusion. Thirdly, we should focus on that prophecy until we attain understanding and Christ becomes visible in our norms and standards. We know when we have arrived at spiritual maturity when Christ's likeness is reflected in our words and in our actions because that's what we have in our thought pattern. Fourthly, we further need to be taking in knowledge in order to understand that no Scripture is to become something that it was not originally due to our own interpretation. Fifthly, we must understand that this prophecy was not brought to us by the desires of man, 
but by means of the Holy Spirit who made it His principle to bring it to us through men who spoke from God. You do well to review those five basics from this text during the week. Let me summarize. The transfiguration of Jesus, which Peter, James, and John witnessed, gave them a glimpse into the divine nature of God as it became visible in that transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. However, Peter tells us in this passage that we have a more steadfast revelation in the writings of Scripture than that which they witnessed, and we would do well to allow those principles to become our guide. So this takes us back to the seven basic principles in the sphere of our dependency upon the promises of God. In the sphere of your utilizing the promises of God, develop a morality that will give credibility to your lifestyle. That can only be accomplished as you yield to the Holy Spirit as you confess your sin and restore the fellowship and allow the Holy Spirit the control of your life day by day. Secondly, we are to develop a process of study of the Word of God. Not just reading the Word, but studying the Word. What does it say? What is the understanding that is being conveyed through that? What is God telling us? Thirdly, Within that study of the Word of God, we are able to develop a self-controlled will. Fourthly, we can develop contentment then, regardless of our situation. You want to review where you are in this process? What's your level of contentment? Is your contentment based upon circumstances or upon the Word of God. Within that sphere of contentment, we can develop a consistency of duty to God that is characterized by our doing what is pleasing to Him rather than desiring to do our own thing. Sixth, we can develop a responsive brotherly love. And seven, in that sphere, we're able to develop a Self-sacrificial love. So we're not to develop our own private interpretation of Scripture. I've talked with people, well, I know that's the way you understand it, but I understand it different. No. There can be a whole lot of application, but there can only be one understanding of what it says. We are to look to that which brought us by agency of the Holy Spirit to understand what God wanted to reveal to us through the writers of Scripture. Peter wants us to understand then that these principles, I call them mechanics, are for developing spiritual maturity so that we can properly represent Christ as sojourners, as foreigners not living in our own country, but living alongside the locals to do the king's business until he takes us to be with him. Now, at the time Peter was writing this epistle, there were a lot of false teachers that had developed. They were teaching various forms of doctrine and frequently brought in the teachings and practices of the various cults of what they had experienced in the past. They tried to make it relative with this new teaching. So Peter made a commitment to establish these principles before his own exodus into the very presence of God. We have an exodus coming too. Hopefully it'll be at the rapture of the church. But should he tarry, some of us will depart by the door of physical death into the very presence of God. That's 
the direction that God is pointing us to understand how to develop that character and then the urgency of developing that character for our own well-being, for our own happiness, as well as alleviating the suffering of those that are around us that happen to experience some of us when we're out of fellowship with Him. But it all begins at salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart, heart, man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The psalmist said it well, and Peter refers to it. Thy word shall be a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, and I will hide its truths in my heart that I do not sin against God. And we could add another byproduct of that, and that is that we might have this divine nature reflected for others to see as well. Our Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. We pray for wisdom in handling it. We know it's a sacred obligation. We pray You give us each an appetite to prove it, to test the interpretation by what You have revealed to us in Your Word. Help us make it a guide for our life. Help us to develop these seven basic mechanics that Peter is pointing us to that others might attest that we've been with you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.